Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hello, hey. hello. Welcome back to Killer Queens. To Killer Queens. <laughs> Yeah, so today we're going to be doing um, the Peterborough Ditch Murders, which is Joanne Dennehy. And a very special thanks to Olivia for researching. And a very special thanks to Joe Bowden, Henry Jones, and Laura Ellison for requesting Yay, thank it. Yay, Yay. Also, really quickly... I would love to shout out somebody who we accidentally did not shout out on the Dior Coons case. I guess we, Big Fat, forgot to write down who requested it, and we are so sorry. But T. Martinez, thank you so much for requesting that. That was a super interesting case. But we are really sorry that we did not do the shout out because we definitely mean to do that every time. So thanks for letting us know. We just, yeah, always let us know. We would never intentionally leave your ass out. Yeah. So thank your ass for requesting it. (laughs) Love you. Thank you. All right. So now, Joanne Dennehy. That bitch. Yes, that bitch. Born in 1982, Joanne Dennehy was described by her mother as a bright girl with big, beautiful blue eyes who grew up in a good home in the affluent town of Harpenden, Hertfordshire. So what would lead this bright young girl to grow up to be a deadbeat mother of two who suddenly went on a murderous spree in 2013? Let's find out. Kevin Lee's family reported him missing on March 29, 2013. Detective Martin Brenning of the Cambridgeshire Police, I guess, department, was the lead investigator and said from the very beginning that he had a gut feeling that something wasn't right, which was solidified when Kevin Lee's car was found in the countryside of Cambridgeshire, England. 48-year-old Kevin Lee, a beloved husband and father of two, lived in Peterborough and managed properties for a living. But he had a secret. He was having an affair with one of his tenants. The morning after Kevin was reported missing, March 30th, 2013, a man walking his dog found the body of Kevin Lee face down and nude from the waist down. He was stabbed to death in the chest and neck, and his body had been deliberately posed in a way to degrade him with a black sequin dress on top of half of his body, or like on the top half of his body. As soon as Brenning observed the manner in which Kevin Lee was disposed of, he knew that this crime was personal and not consistent with that of a stranger killing, so he started digging into people that Kevin associated with. Not long after the investigation began, cell phone data came back, which placed one of Kevin's tenants in the vicinity of his burnt-out vehicle, and this was 30-year-old Joanne Dennehy. The data also placed Gary Richards, also known as Gary Stretch, a 7-foot-3 man with a rap sheet of burglaries under his belt. Can you imagine? I'm five foot nothing. 
seven foot three. Insanity. Yeah. Like, how tall are doorways? I don't know. know. Like in your house. I have no idea. That's like, that's like super fucking tall. Well, and you would hope that somebody would be a gentle giant if they're going to be that big. Like, why you, why? That's true. You're just using your powers for evil. Mm -hmm. Think of all the, the dusting you could do for old ladies. Think of all the reaching on the top shelf at grocery stores that you could do for me. Yes, absolutely. I've had to utilize tall people at the grocery store more than once. Yeah. I like try to climb and wriggle myself up and somebody will come by and be like, do you need help with that? And I'm like, oh my God, yes. Yeah. I need a tall person. Exactly. But if somebody needs someone to hide in a suitcase, I'm your girl. Exactly. Yeah, or crawl into (laughs) the ductwork. Sure, slip through a seam in the wall. Any of those things. Here for it. Exactly. Joanne, Gary, and another friend, Mark Lloyd, who was later deemed to have been forced to go with them, drove 140 miles to Hereford, where Joanne decided on a whim to jump out of the car and randomly attack and leave for dead two men walking their dogs. 64-year-old Robin Bereza and 56-year-old John Rogers. These poor men. I know. She, and no rhyme or reason. Exactly. A lot of people refer to her as a serial killer. And I guess technically she did kill three people. But she's a spree killer because she didn't have, there wasn't a cool down period. This is not like, this is over the course of a very short time. Like a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, she didn't like kill somebody and then wait a few months and kill somebody else and wait, like let it build up. You know, it was just, all in this kind of one period of time where it was just like anybody who came across her could very well have been a victim. Yes. I would be interested because we've talked about it before, but that show Most Evil, he broke all of the killers. Like every episode was a different spree killers, like lust killing or crimes of passion, like that kind of stuff. Um, He did serial killers and stuff, of course, but he did a spree killers one. And I just wonder if she made the list at all. Yeah, yeah. And she's definitely a little, I mean, she's an anomaly in the sense that she was a woman. Oh, absolutely. Because there's not that many female serial killers, obviously in comparison to men, but this was like kind of a binge for her. It was Mm -hmm. like, she went for it and she couldn't stop kind of thing. And couldn't get enough. Like she was like, okay, I got to do more. We got to do more. Yeah, yeah. The attacks on these two men happened within 20 minutes of each other. So like we said, there's no cooldown period. Not even like it's an like a hour. negative cooldown period. <laughs> yeah. It's like she's just driving and then she's like, there's another one. It's like the first one she comes to. Robin Bereza, a retired fireman, was her first victim and he was attacked from behind and stabbed over 30 times. Joanne fled the scene after Bereza fought back and then he walked the half mile uphill back to his home to call for help. Can you believe it? Wow. He's like, tis but a scratch. Tis but a flesh wound, yeah. (laughs) He passed a surgeon's office on the way to his home, but he didn't want to stop because he just wanted to get home to see his wife first since they had just celebrated their 36th anniversary the day before. What a precious angel and also a freaking badass. Like, right? Wow. Yeah, that's so fucking sweet. That's like I can't carry on with my day if I get a paper cut. So I don't know how this man accomplished what... I mean, that's just... It's just... It's otherworldly. Like that is just impressive is not even the right word. That's amazing. 
what your mind, what your brain can do when you are being attacked and like sending all the adrenaline through your body and all that kind of stuff is, I mean, it's amazing. It is. John Rogers was next. He was also attacked from behind and stabbed over 40 times. And then Joanne stole his dog. (gasps) That poor dog. That poor, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's who the hell does she think she is? I know. A passerby came upon him and called for help. Upon getting back into the vehicle with John's dog, all she says was, Hey, I got a new dog. Oh my God. Hey, got a dog. Both were airlifted to the hospital where they were both in intensive care for several days. Joanne's demeanor was described by the victims as matter of fact and completely devoid of emotion. Both men attribute their lives being saved to expert medical teams who attended them but they do still both suffer emotional and psychological effects. Of course they would, my gosh. Yeah. John Rogers, a musician, suffered with nerve damage to his hand and arm afterward and was no longer able to play his guitar. Of course, they escaped with their lives, which is a miracle. But that it's the ripple effect that we talk about. It just doesn't, it doesn't just touch certain parts of your life or certain people. I mean, one of his passions in life he cannot do anymore. His whole life has changed forever. Exactly. Yeah. It's not just the the fear and the like PTSD and all that. It's like every time you wish you could play your guitar, you have to remember that attack. Yeah. She could have potentially, hopefully she didn't, but she could have potentially robbed him of joy. Just day-to-day joy. That is so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All because she, she felt was like bored it. or yeah. yeah. Fucking bitch. After being on the run for two days, Joanne Dennehy was apprehended shortly after she randomly attacked the two dog walkers. Police had been tracking them by using CCTV footage taken of Joanne as she and Gary drove across the country, stopping to buy cigarettes and snacks at service stations. Gary Stretch made a run for it, but he was captured later on. Also, if you're going to be a, a giant, you can't commit crimes. You're too easily spotted. People can pick you out. They're like, well, the guy I saw was 90 feet tall. Yeah, he was actually taller than all the trees and buildings, so. Yeah, so who does that leave? Godzilla? (laughs) You! Exactly, yeah. Can't hide. You're a sitting duck. Exactly. Upon arriving at the jail to be booked, Joanne was told that she was booked for suspicion of murder and attempted murder, to which her reaction was to just crack a shit-eating grin and ask what happened to her new dog. And then say, well, it could be worse. I could be big, black, fat, and ugly. Oh, oh my God. Oh. Wow. Who the fuck does she think she is? That took a turn. Like, she's a piece of shit, but I- that took a turn that I wasn't ready for. The layers of terrible, god-awful, doesn't deserve to be on this earth person. They run deep. Like, you keep pulling back and you're like, oh, there's more. Oh, okay, she's like <laughs> the Russian doll of... Fucking asshole. <laughs> Fucking asshole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then she proceeded to joke around and flirt with the officers and admitted that she had drank half a bottle of whiskey. The, obviously, she's got some mental issues too. I mean, she's like, she was very big fat flirting with the police officers. And I think the footage of her being booked is on like YouTube. Like you can see it. And just her, her whole demeanor, it was just very strange and like, It was like she was literally trying to like get with these guys. It was super weird. I watched a documentary, I guess, on on the case. And it says it's just 
the thing on YouTube was just Joanna Dennehy, which her parents call her Joanna, but everybody else calls her Joanne. And then one guy calls her Joe. Yeah, I was really confused about that because I was like, is it Joanne or Joanna? Like her mom called her Joanna, I'm pretty sure. But it's just says hashtag crime TV, but there is a it's a it's a show in Britain or England or wherever. I think it was called like Britain's most or the the crimes that shook England or the crimes that shook Britain or something like that. And they showed part of where she's being booked and she's like standing at, a, I guess they called it a stall or something where she's like being being booked, right? And she's like, oh gosh, you've got really distinctive eyebrows. And he's like, yeah, you've already said that to me. And she's like, just notice, you know, like just, you know, like throwing it out there and seeing what she can get. She's like, um, come here often. Like, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you have distinctive eyebrows. Does that work for you? It didn't seem to work in that instance, but I'm guessing <laughs> maybe it's a quantity situation. Maybe you need to try yeah, more. I'm just not sure how I would feel about it if somebody came up to me and was like, you know, you've got really distinctive eyebrows. I'm like, is that good or bad? Distinctive is not necessarily a good thing. Because Eugene Levy has distinctive eyebrows. Right. There was a woman one time I was doing her hair and she was like, you know what, Tori, you're remarkable. And I was like, Thank you. And she goes, Oh, are you going to take that as a compliment? And I was like, Oh, well, not anymore. What did she mean? No idea. And she was kind of kooky and she just giggled. And I was like, Okay. Or was she doing the like Regina George thing where she's like, Oh, so you think you're really, really pretty. pretty? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you think you're pretty? And she's like, I'm just saying thank you. Like, I don't, I know, right? <laughs> I don't know. But you know who else has really distinctive eyebrows? The grandfather figure guy on Luke Who's Talking, those hairy jobs above his eyes. <laughs> he does have some hairy jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't understand how that Yeah. I don't even know if I can call it a compliment, how that would work for her. It didn't seem to work for her then, though, I'm just saying. Yeah, I don't know how I would feel about it. Although a group of people who has not distinctive eyebrows typically are newborn babies. Because <laughs> when Jesse was born, Ben was like what, two and a half? years old and we bring Ben to see Jesse and he's looking at him and he's like oh he's so cute and he like leans down he's like where's some eyebrows <laughs> like, they're just blonde I don't know they'll come in <laughs> so funny it was like the first thing you said about his brother where's some eyebrows I love it the next day was when Detective Brunning received a call about two bodies side by side in a ditch 10 miles from where Kevin Lee's body had been discovered first. <sighs> in the documentary, Brunning says that his reaction to this news was, well, crikey, where is this going? <laughs> so people actually say it. I Like Olivia was like, I didn't think anybody other than the crocodile hunter said it, but I guess so. Well, I mean... It's if ever there was a time to use it, I guess that would be a good time. Oh, sure. I also, in the documentary I watched on the Soem murders, the journalist who would like go and report on it all the time was like, Yeah, when he was doing the timeline, like he was going back over it. And he's like, So these people saw the girls walking that, you know, because they were going to go to the store. And he's like, They all say cheerio. And then they turn around and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, You use that in a sentence like it was nothing. Like, it's, they really say it. I don't I know. It's like for us, it. it's like you just hear it in movies. Like, yeah, I don't know. It was pretty funny. It's like, no sooner did they say cheerio than they're off. No, it's <laughs> again. There have to be certain things that we say as Southerners that everybody's like, oh shit, they actually say that. 
Yeah. But our stuff is not as like adorable, I feel like. No, it's crazier than a shithouse rat. Yeah. Like I remember when I lived in California and my a guy that I worked with was like, you know, hey, have you started working on this or have you got this done or whatever? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm fixing to send that over to you. And he's like, what are you saying to me? And I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm fixing to do it. I'll get to it in just a minute. And he's like, are you saying the word fixing to? And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's like, what the fuck does that mean? And I'm like, that means I'm about to, I'm going to, I'm about to get it started. He's like, he had never heard that before. Hilarious. Yeah. And he was just like, are you speaking English? I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> there are certain things like, I don't know if everybody says stuff like this, but you know, like, oh, you're, she's knee-high to a pig's eye or like knee-high to a grasshopper. I've heard that too. No bigger than a minute. No bigger than a minute. And then our aunt, whenever she, I don't know, I've heard her say it a bunch, but she's like, oh, swanny. When something's yeah, like, oh, geez, you know? Yeah. I think we say, uh, bless your heart. A lot. Yeah. Bless and people it. don't, yeah, people don't use it like that. Because it can be a good or a bad thing. Uh, yeah. And in the South, a lot of times it's a bad thing. Well, it's, it's a nice way to say, what a stupid idiot. Yeah. Bless her heart. Okay. <laughs> the bodies belong to Lucas Lab... Labazuski? I'm so sorry. I don't know. A 31-year-old Polish national who had worked as a builder and John Chapman, a 56-year-old veteran who was a housemate with Joanne Dennehy. That's the other thing. She like picked people that she was connected to. At first, and then she went completely random. But after everybody yeah. was like, oh, that must be that bitch, Joanne Dunahy. Yeah, but also she was just like out in front of everybody. You know, she's just like, here I am. Like, I, that's how I imagine her <laughs> jumping out of the car, like just wild and acting fucking crazy. Like, she didn't try to hide it. She was just like. For some reason, that voice that you did reminded me of Robin Hood Men in Tights, where the guy's like, hey, I bet. And they're like, oh, I hate that guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, probably everybody was like, oh, hate that bitch. Lucas had just met Joanna. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes they call her Joanna. Yeah, I don't know. A couple days before he was murdered, on March 28th, 2013, she sent him several suggestive text messages and lured him with the promise of sex. So she was probably like, hey, Lucas, you have really distinctive eyebrows. <laughs> Do you want to come over? That's an unequivocal sex invite. Exactly. Yeah. The last CCTV footage of him showed him withdrawing cash from an ATM before he headed to her house. When he arrived at her house, Joanne stabbed him in the heart with a pocket knife. God. Then she stored his body in a wheelie bin, which is like their garbage cans on wheels. Well, that's just an adorable and very appropriate name for that. I love it. Yeah. I thought when I heard it at first, I thought they meant a wheelbarrow. Um, but then they said that she brought it over to like kind of the dumpster area and then nobody found it and she was pissed so she moved it. But then I was like, oh, it's probably a... On the documentary that I watched, she brought a 14-year-old girl over to look at the body. Yeah, and then like nobody said anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's what she says right here. She stored his body in a wheelie bin until she could dispose of it, showed it off to a 14-year-old girl, and she also took pictures of it so she could show it off to others. See why she's like, ah! that's <laughs> she's a nut job. Right. John Chapman had served in the Royal Navy and was well liked by everyone, although he suffered from alcoholism. John had been drunk and high when Joanne attacked and stabbed him six times in the neck, 
severing the carotid artery in the chest, hitting his heart twice. Oh my gosh. It's speculated that he could have been attacked while he was sleeping as his blood alcohol content was four times the legal limit. I think that's the general consensus is that he was asleep. Kind of like knocked out from the drinking, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, that's like a heavy sleep if you're that drunk. Like, Well, I do not mean to compare personality types or anything like that. Just just the act of it, I guess. But John Wayne Bobbitt, mm-hmm. he was blackout drunk and didn't even realize it until he's like, man, I, I, felt, I felt some tugging. His whole dick came off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was like, well, I was just sleepy. You're pretty hammered. Yeah. Just call a spade a spade, like whatever. And this poor guy, he's like just drinking in his house, goes to bed, minding his own business, not doing anything to anybody else. Yeah. yeah. Like whatever. John had previously referred to Joanne as the mad woman when speaking to other tenants in the complex and had said that she told him that she would get him out by any means. When police searched his home, they found a blood soaked mattress in the garden as evidence. After John's murder, Joanne casually called Gary Stretch Richards to tell him, oops, I've done it again. You are not Britney Spears. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. And don't ever even try. Richards then came to the crime scene with his friend Leslie Layton, where they helped Joanne dispose of Lucas and John's bodies in the ditch at Thorny Dyke. Forensic analysts later found a photo of John's body on Layton's phone. So we have yet another case of beer-flavored nipples, is what I'm hearing. I think so. I don't get it because, I mean, to each his own, like, but as far as attractive women, I'm not putting her on that list. I would not compliment her distinctive eyebrows, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't. She's got whiskey-flavored nipples, though, because there's a lot of whiskey involved in this one. Yeah, I think so. Whiskey and trash, maybe? Yeah. But I guess there are those who like the trash-flavored nipples. As far as Kevin Lee, he said in his last conversation with a friend the afternoon of his murder that he had plans to meet up with Joanne later, and she planned to dress him up and rape him. Yeah, so I guess, I guess Joanne was into like BDSM and stuff, and so she would send him text messages that had those kind of like tones in it, and he was like totally fine with that. So that's fine. If that's what you guys are doing, it's consensual, like whatever. Certainly, I don't think his part of his plan was to be stabbed in the chest. I, I would think he's not okay with that. No. You know, but this is Joanne we're talking about. She stabbed him five times in the chest, penetrating his lungs and heart, and there were also defensive wounds to suggest that he tried to fight her off. Richards and Layton had also assisted in dumping Kevin's body and setting his car on fire. After all the murders, Gary and Joanne visited their friend, Georgina Page, where they bragged about what they had done and how the bodies would never be found. They literally were found like the next day. Well, she literally drew them a treasure map to the bodies, so. Yeah. But like, why didn't anybody say anything? (sighs) Yeah, Georgina said she was scared that Joanne would do something to her, but like, that's that could be a real concern because she's very much a loose cannon. But she is, but then after that she goes on to stab two more people and almost killed them. 100%. I mean, that blood is on your hands too, Georgina. Yeah. If you know that kind of information, I'm sorry, but you have to tell. Yeah. 
Joanne told her that she had lubricated Kevin's bottom and pushed an object into his rectum to make it look like his murder had been part of a sexual act. She was also extremely excited when she saw the police were looking for her on the news. While they were on the run, they were housed by Robert Moore, who was also aware of what they had done. Okay. This is just like a bunch of fucking sketchy people. Yes, it sounds like. And they're probably all like, well, not my problem. Right? And Joanne has a very Luca Magnata outlook on attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. This is excellent. They're looking for me. It's like, you do realize your stupid ass is going to jail forever. Forever. Like, lock you away, throw away the key. Yeah. Minutes after Joanne was arrested for the murder of three innocent men and the attempted murder of two others, she laughed and said, murder and attempted murder is nothing. It's like going down for a Sunday roast. Easy. What does that even mean? Yeah. And also, she has two children. I forget. See, that's the thing about this case is they kind of completely get looked over. I mean, thank God she does not have them with her. Yeah. Well, in the documentary that I watched, we do go into her history some. Okay. I didn't get any history on her. A little bit from her parents, but. Okay. Yeah. So the documentary that I watched actually the only person they talked to was her ex, John. And so he's like telling the whole story of how they got together. And it really goes into like the parenthood aspect because John is a single dad now and he has been for a long time. Like they had a lot of problems, but we'll go into that in a little bit. But yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Friends of Joanne described her as having a magnetic personality which drew men to her. The description is hard to match with the mugshot of her post-arrest with scars up and down her arms and stomach and pretty much a don't give a fuck demeanor about what she had done. And also she just looks like dirty and gross and just like haggard. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything. She's road hard and put up wet, what she is. 100%. In Joanne's police interview, she was completely silent and subdued and only replied no comment to the questions she was asked. She was immediately deemed to be a psychiatric risk and was taken to a mental health unit for evaluation where she was diagnosed with psychopathy with characteristics, including having a charming nature on the outside, being a pathological liar, having no regard for others, and showing zero remorse for her actions. She told her psychiatrist that she was sadistic and saw the murders as a fetish. Detective Brunning fully anticipated Joanne would enter a not guilty plea and they would proceed to trial where some explanations would come out in regards to her actions. But when the judge asked how she would plead, she shouted, guilty, 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 over and over. Joanne's legal counsel were in shock at the last minute change at her plea. I'm sure. Yeah. It's like, I'm trying to help you. And she's like, wild card, bitches. Yeah, exactly. At 31 years old, Joanne was one of three British women to be sentenced to life in prison. She's now serving her time in the Bronzefield prison where she's attempted to carry out escape plans and has committed violence against other prisoners. Detective Brunning described her as the most violent woman in the prison system. Gary Stretch went to trial and was found guilty of two counts of attempted murder and three counts of preventing lawful burial and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 19 years. Leslie Layton was sentenced to 14 years for two counts of preventing lawful burial and preventing the course of justice by lying to police. Robert Moore was sentenced to three years for two counts of assisting an offender. Joanne's best friend from secondary school, Vicki Greenwood, described her as having a dark side starting from when she was about 14 years old. 
She would manipulate people to do things for her, such as her homework. She'd get into physical altercations with them if they didn't do it. She would get close to people and make them feel special, but if they didn't conform to what she wanted to do, she would completely turn on them. Another former school friend was the subject of Joanne's charm and manipulation until Joanne suddenly began bullying her, saying that she would be waiting for her outside or somewhere on her walk home from school to give her what was coming to her. Joanne also told her to go ahead and commit suicide because everyone would be better off without her around. Oh my gosh. hateful. She said that she thought Joanne's bullying was a game to her. Her family described her as a bookworm and girly girl until she met John Trainer, who was six years older than her. She was 15 years old and he was like 20 or 21. She ran away from home to be with him and they were together for the next 10 years. And John said that her family's belief was that she changed because of her relationship with him. And he's like, that's a load of crap because he made his intentions with her clear from the beginning. He stated that he was aware that the age of consent was 16. And he says they had no sexual relationship until she turned 16. I don't know if I believe that. I don't believe that at all. And the thought of, because six years, not a big deal when you're, let's say, 32 and 38. But when you're 14 and 20? It's disgusting. It's, that's a, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and he was like, you know, the age, like, it didn't, it wasn't like that for me. It wasn't about that for me. Like, I knew there was an age difference, but it didn't feel that way. And I'm like, ew. Like, it should. Like, mm-hmm. He seems like he's got his shit together now and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know. I I don't know. That's not cool. Mm-mm. Joanne got pregnant at the age of 17 with their first child, and John said that this was not a planned pregnancy. And at this point, he doesn't really talk about his drug use or drinking. I'm assuming he is using drugs and drinking during this time as well because they spent some time being homeless. They lived on the street for a year together. But he said that once she got pregnant, she stopped smoking and drinking and doing any kind of drugs. She just completely quit while she was pregnant. And the clinical like psychologist or whatever that they talked to in the documentary that I watched was like, You know, it shows that she can turn away from that kind of behavior, that she has the ability to. And to me, it also shows her lack of self-worth because the only time she ever got off of drugs and drinking was for her children. So it did seem like she at least wanted her kids to be healthy. Otherwise, why would she care to stop doing that stuff? But she also obviously didn't care about herself enough to do it any other time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of sucks. He said as soon as their daughter was born, they brought her home and it was basically like, here, John, you take the baby. She had no maternal instinct, wanted nothing to do with that kid. And like she was super standoffish towards the baby. Her number one priority once she had a kid was drugs and drinking again. That's like all she wanted to do. She started cheating on John all the time. Uh, She drank up to two liters of vodka a day, but she would still be like, walking around and doing stuff. She's very functional alcoholic in the sense that she still could get up and do stuff. She wasn't passing on the floor, but she certainly wasn't doing anything productive. Right. She was unable to cope with having a relationship and a daughter, so she started to self-medicate. 
John left her for the first time, but then shortly got back together with her. And here's the thing. Like when I first heard that they got together when she was like 15, he's 20, 21, whatever. I'm like, okay, well, there's got to be some control on his part, right? Like, I don't know. It just seems like such a weird thing to do. But in their relationship, she was the controller. She was the one that was abusive to him. She controlled everything that he did and all that kind of stuff. She'd started becoming violent with him. And that increased drastically after they had their second child. It was when Joanne started sticking pins through her arm and stabbed a knife into the floor saying, I could just kill someone that John was like, okay, I've got to leave Joanne. Like the kids aren't safe here. And he was like, I didn't want to take the kids away from their mother, but it wasn't safe anymore. And he was the only one doing anything with the kids. Like he was the only one taking care of them. It's just, he definitely started to fear for their safety. Mm-hmm. And according to John, he said life in prison should not be punishment enough for her. And he believes that she deserves the death penalty, stating that she is not the mother of their children. She just birthed them. I feel really bad for those kids. Mm-hmm. Like having to know what their mom did. And like that she just did not care about them. Yeah, not at all. Because... Look, and I get it. Like, I mean, addiction is a really, it's a hard thing because there are plenty of people who are like, you know, I want to stop doing this. I want to do better for, you know, my family or whatever, but it definitely has a hold on you. But she legit just did not give a shit. I think she just pushed the kids out and was like, all right, I'm done with that. And and probably resented them for being the reason she couldn't do drugs and drinking for as long as she you know, had to stop. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And she she didn't take relationships in her life seriously. She was much more concerned with like going out and partying and all that kind of stuff. So John said that, you know, people would call him all the time and be like, hey, Joanne's at this bar. Joanne's with this guy. Joanne left with this guy. And he was like, I got sick of people calling me, telling me what she was doing. You know, knowing that I'm home with the kids. Like, yeah. And it's obvious. I mean, that's so blatantly like does not care at all about mm-mm. the repercussions or about who she's hurting or who she's left dead and bloodied and buried along the way. Exactly. And she would like, she'd disappear for a long time, like a super long time. Like one time she disappeared for a year. Like she's like, okay, see you later. I'm going to work. And then she just didn't come home for a year. And he's pretty sure she went to jail some during that time because she did go to jail several times throughout all of this, like for short periods of time, but she would go to jail. And he's like, you know, I'm out with the kids at the park or whatever. And I'd run into her there and she's wearing men's clothing. She obviously doesn't have any of her own clothes. She stinks to high heaven. She hasn't had a bath in who knows how long. So she'd, I'd invite her home to clean her up. He's like, I didn't want to see her like that. And, you know, try to get her to stay and whatever. She'd stay for a day or two. She'd act kind of normal. And then she'd be gone again and just go right back to whatever it was that she's doing. Drinking, drugging, living on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So after John left Joanne for the final time, because they did have a lot of off and on, she moved to Peterborough where John Chapman was her housemate. According to the police, the reason this all happened was during Joanne's relationship with Kevin Lee He would use her as intimidation to do his dirty work by physically threatening and assaulting tenants into paying rent or moving out. So she would like collect on people's rent if they were like late and that kind of stuff. She was his muscle. Carla White was one of the neighbors that was a victim of her assaults. When she first introduced herself to Joanne, 
Joanne immediately put her hand around Carla's throat and only let go when Carla grabbed a hammer out of her bag to defend herself. Lord. She's a, yeah. Carla described hearing certain disturbing details about Joanne's sex life, such as her waking up a man by carving into his back because she wanted to see what it felt like, and then her wanting to be punched in the face during sex. Oh my. Yeah. Carla mentioned that she warned Kevin about their relationship, saying that if he played with fire, he was going to get burned. Kevin's sister-in-law stated that Kevin most likely manipulated into a relationship with Joanne. And Kevin's son said that his father probably became a victim because of his nature to see the best in people, always giving everyone a chance, seeing everyone as equal and helping others. I don't know. I mean, maybe, but also if he's like trying to use her as muscle to intimidate people into like collecting his debts and stuff, that seems a little not rainbows and butterflies to me, but yeah, I don't know. You know, that's... Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. In April 2019, Joanne's daughter, who at that point was 19-year-old, her name is maybe Cheyenne Trainer, S-H-I-A-N-N-E. Yeah, I would say Cheyenne. Was interviewed and disclosed that while she misses her mother, she knows that her mother deserves to die in prison. She was born when Joanne was only 17. Her parents tried to stay together off and on, even having a second child, even though Joanne started going down the wrong path drinking copious amounts of alcohol, self-harming, and having casual sex. One night when Cheyenne was five years old, Joanne went out drinking and sent a man over to their home in the middle of the night to beat up John. My God, what did he do? (laughs) Exactly. Joanne would go on drinking benders and leave for several days to a month at a time, usually returning home with black eyes, cuts all over her, and hickeys from her cheating escapades. And then huge arguments between her parents would ensue for hours. Cheyenne said her mother went from a doting mom to a man-hating psychopath. I wonder if that's kind of a, she's looking at her previous, like her early life through rose-colored glasses because it doesn't sound like she was a doting mom. Right, that's what I'm wondering. Because I mean, the way John puts it is it's like the moment they came home with the baby, she was like, get that out of my face. Like, Well, yeah, and of course, Cheyenne is only, I'm not calling her a liar, but she sees it the way that she maybe wanted to see it or... Yeah. And maybe like those times that Joanne would come home off and on, she would be engaging with the kids. You know, maybe those are the memories she has of her. Mm-hmm. And then when she was gone, she was just gone. And that was just kind of how it was. Like she was used to it. Yeah. But when she would come home, you know, as a kid, you want to believe your parents love you and care about you. Absolutely. So- well, and it's amazing what trauma can do to your body and your memory and you block out things and only remember the good things sometimes because it's like a self-preservation thing. You have to. Yeah, absolutely. So she was nine years old when John took the kids and moved to Derbyshire. She was at a sleepover at a friend's house on the day her dad called her to tell her that her mother had murdered someone. And from then on, he tried to ban her from getting on the internet to try to protect her. And he said that, like, because they asked him, what did you tell your kids? And he's like, I had to tell them the truth. Like, I didn't give him gory details. I didn't go into a lot about it. But I just said, your mom has killed somebody. And she's going to jail. And you're not going to see her. Like, that's just how it is. But when she was 13 years old, she searched for her mom on the internet against her dad's wishes. And she found out the truth. From then on, she became depressed and scared that she would turn out like her mom. It's awful because she definitely won't, but that's really hard to see when you're in it. Right. She even had to change schools when more and more people started to find out who she really was. 
When she turned 18, she decided to go directly to the source and write her mother a letter to try to find out why she'd gone on a murdering spree. She describes her letter as emotionless because she had assumed her mother hated her. She didn't expect to receive a letter back from her mom explaining that she wanted to be a part of her life and how much she loved her. On her first visit to see her mom in prison, Cheyenne was incredibly nervous and shaking. On their visit, they both cried together and Cheyenne asked the question everyone wanted to know, which was why. Joanne apologized to her, something that Cheyenne had always wanted her to do since her mom's actions would cause her to miss out on so many important events in her life. She never really gave a real explanation, but she admitted that she killed the men for fun and that she got a taste for it. Oh my. That leaves something to be desired. Cheyenne tries to remember the good times that she and her mom shared. They used to love to curl up on the couch and read books together, go for walks. Joanne did art projects with her and her friends, even letting them paint artwork all over the walls. She described her mom as a big kid. Now Cheyenne realizes she could never turn out like her mother because she's her own person and her mother never had much of an impact on her since she wasn't around for very long. She said that in some ways her mother ruined her life just because she is tied to murders. She has apologized to the families of the victims and wishes that her mom would give some sort of explanation for what she did. And she never will. You know, it's interesting because I think depending on your story, your history, whatever, a lot of people probably struggle with that. Like, oh my gosh, I hope I don't turn out like my mom or my dad or whoever. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I mean, obviously you can't see it in the moment. I mean, you can't, sometimes it's like day to day, moment to moment, you can't see it, you know? Yeah. And it just seeps in. It's scary though, when you're so, if one of your biggest fears or something that's really, really important to you is not turning out like that person, of course, you're going to be scared that you will. And even if there are glaringly obvious examples of why you won't be like them, like, oh, well, I have compassion. I have the ability to see what's right and what's wrong, you know? But there's part of you, I think, that will think like, well, I came from that person. They made me, so I'm part of them, like their DNA, their genes mm-hmm. in me. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you hear so many people talk about that. And even growing up, you know, probably in some times when things are a little bit better, I bet people said to her, oh, you do that just like your mom or, you know, so you hear that enough and you're like, well, I have to be somewhat like her. And everybody's like, oh, my kids are the best parts of me or, you know. 100%. And it's amazing to me how you can, I mean, years later or just, you know, like little things, maybe after the fact or whatever, you can realize like, oh my gosh, whenever I sit on the couch and watch TV, I sit exactly like mom used to. or. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just little things. You catch yourself making a facial expression that you're like, I know my mom made that face. I can't see my face right now, but I know I'm making that face. Like, and I don't want to. And that kind of stuff like kind of scares you. Like, ooh, yeah, don't do that. And absolutely. then you try to actively not make a face that you can't help making, but yeah. Right. Yeah. It's I feel really bad for her because that's I mean, for a lot of reasons, but that's really difficult. And then, you know, you hear comments that are like, you want to know what your wife is going to look like in 20 years? Look at her mother. Oh, and it's gosh, like, I know, I know. Don't. Because people make like comments offhanded. And then, you know, and you can't, you can't expect everybody to know your story, you know? So of course people are going to say stuff they have no idea, but it's like, you hear something like that. And then you start to think about it and you're like, oh my God, in 30 years, am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to just go crazy and decide I want to do this? Because you know, because John, when he was talking in the interview, he's like, look, 
did I think there was something wrong with her? Did I think she had some behaviors that were unusual and that probably weren't safe for herself and our kids? Yeah. Did I think she, did I ever imagine a million years that she would go out and murder people? No. Like, how could you? Yeah. He's like, how are you supposed to know what somebody's going to do? It just, or what somebody is capable of. Yeah. Even, even that kind of behavior, how erratic she was, I just never, ever thought this was going to happen. So, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I feel for her. That's, that's awful. And like, and he said, you know, I had to tell them the truth because at some point they're going to be old enough to go on the internet. And that's what my daughter did. She went and looked her up. She found out everything. What would that have done to her trust in me had I lied to her? Absolutely. That's the thing. Exactly. Because it, you know, again, Britney Spears quotes abound. Don't let me be the last to know. Like you don't want to, cause that's, that's your business. You see their kids have every right to know what happened to their mom. Mm-hmm. And I understand that at certain ages, maybe it's more delicate. We, you know, like you don't, Lie, yeah. but maybe, you know, mom's going away. She's, you're not going to see her again. Like maybe something like that. Yeah. She did a bad thing. A really young kid. She did something really bad. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, to to lie and be like, well, you actually yeah. never had a mother. I don't know. You know, like that's not, that's not okay. Yeah. yeah. So I think he did the best he could there. I don't, I don't love that he got with her when she was so young, but people make mistakes. We, you know, you should never make that kind of mistake. No, it definitely bit him right in the ass, though. Unfortunately, yes. And yeah. unfortunately, they have two children who are also living with that for the rest of their lives. So, yeah, sad. It is sad. Super sad. But, yep, that's uh, that's Joanne Dennehy. I do remember it was probably three or four years ago. I was watching something on the ID channel, and it was something about her. And I was like, oh my gosh, because there were pictures of her. I mean, you can tell. Maybe this is why the distinctive eyebrows came into play because she has almost no eyebrows. She plucked them into oblivion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure, because she's how old? I mean, that would be that would be prime. The the one eyebrow connected, the one eyebrow connected, the one eyebrow, <laughs> yes. and kind of like a comma. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Or sperm, depending on uh oh, yes. If you're yeah, if you do a little, I don't know. If you do a little more at the the inside, yeah. Yes. And she had, but she didn't have any, no comma, no nothing. It was literally just like 20s, 1920s style little line across her eyebrow or across her forehead. Oh yeah, you're right. She has essentially no eyebrows. They are almost non-existent. She just looks yucky though. She does. She honestly, and we do not talk bad about people that, I'm sorry, do not deserve it. She deserves it. Yeah. And... She looks like something that you pulled out of a drain when you were cleaning out the hair. She really does. She's gross. And just this big long knife that she's holding, and she's like, she just looks her tongue out at it. Yeah, she's gross. She's super gross. Just looks rough. Well, there you have it. That's the end of that. We're actually going to be doing another female killer next. Got Eileen Warnos coming up. So I feel like ready for that. On this is an unintentional series that we're doing almost, you know, we're like, oh, okay, that's not common. Yeah. But we've had a lot of requests for Eileen Warnos, so. Mm -hmm. And Joanne, so. yeah. Yeah, so there you go. Yep. So we'll catch you next time. This episode brought to you by our wonderful producers, Greg Brock, Brittany Buell, and Karen Washington. We love you. Thank you.
Okay, before we go today, we've got some shout outs for our newest patrons. Thank you guys for the support. Thank you, Francis Armis, Sarah Reichert, Marcy Ruiz, Anna Malia, Sierra Zagari, Jillian Manti, Cheyenne, Nikki Jefferson, Lauren Guess, Coral Pell, Haley Jones, Allie Optike, Sophia Gomez, Amanda Fontaine, Shantae Williams, Christy Frizzell, Whitney James, Alexandra Lewis, Holly Zander, Stephanie Connor, Megan Taylor, Stacy Richter, Samantha Noft, Dana McManners, Jennifer Santos, Donovan Shea, Ashley Chitwood, Norlin Dawn, Dodd, sorry, Haley N. Elkins, Madeline Landry, Kayla, Erica, Edie Barrero, Kayla Burdett, Bree Hammond, Greg Brock, who is also a producer. Ooh. Heyo. Lauren Walker. Katie Thompson. Christina. Victoria George. Sarah Mann. Heather Wald. Mira Manchanda. Lauren. Autumn Hayes. Danielle Smith. Shaylee McVeigh. Samantha Byler. Danny Crossland. Lauren S. Kelsey Lagan. Casey Brown. Ashley. Lisa Aerosmith, Callie Ingle, Kelly Ramsey, Melanie Morrison, Andrea Sinatro, Ashley Love, Amanda Cutter, Paige Bryson, Jessica Levitt, Megan, Lanita Green, Alice Guyton, Vanessa, Jasmine, Jessica Valencia, Madison Eubanks, Gwen Donovan, and Rachel Kanzierski. Hope I said that right. Thank you guys. Thank we you love so you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 